The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
Good morning. There's a few more here now than there were at 8.15. (laughs) Well, obviously this is Labor Day weekend. It's a holiday set aside to honor the working man, the laborer. We've all got work to do. And we all have projects. Some of them are big. Some of them are manageable. And I want you to think for a minute about the biggest project that you've ever taken on. For me, personally, it would probably be college. And for me and Debbie together, it would probably be the rebuilding of our mortuary after it burned to the ground in 1995. But when you finish a big project, what do you what do? You, do? you sigh a big sigh of relief and you say, it's finished. Well, those are the exact words that Jesus uttered on the cross. In the 19th chapter of John, we read, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. There's a whole communion devotional right there, but we'll save that one for another day. Continuing on, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But what was finished? Well, let me take you on a real fast tour of the book of John. In John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And a little farther on into that chapter, John tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we can see that whatever it was that Jesus finished, started before the beginning of creation. That's a pretty big project. Well, then a little farther into that story, there was a man that we know as John the Baptizer. And he saw Jesus coming and he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's a really big project. But to the Jewish people... That was a proclamation that he was the long-awaited Messiah. So that meant to them that he was going to oust the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom and bring back the glory days of Israel. But as we read the story, that wasn't what he really started doing. You see, he started gathering around fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and zealots and other undesirables. 
And once he was even found talking to a Samaritan woman. And to make things even worse, he told all these people that they could be in his kingdom. Well, when he finished talking to that Samaritan woman, his disciples were wanting to know, well, what are you doing? And he told them, look around. There are all kinds of people around here and around you all the time that are ripe for the harvest. You should be bringing them into the fold. And when they tried to get him to eat something, he told them that his food was to finish the work that his father had sent him to do. Another time, he healed a man on the Sabbath. That was a really big no-no to the Jewish leaders. In addition, he made claims that he was equal with God. He really knew how to make those guys mad. And in that same conversation, he told them that he and his father were the source of life, just like we read a little while ago. He went on to say that the works that the father gave him to finish were proof that he indeed was the Messiah. Well, he did a lot of healings of blind people and cripples and lepers, all people who were not permitted into the fellowship of the temple. He did teachings telling the people that they were all welcome. He taught the Jewish leaders that the work that they were placing on the people was burdensome and not at all what he and his father had intended. And some of them even listened. And finally, on the last night before his crucifixion, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you gave me to do. From there, he was arrested, subjected to a mock trial, even hailed as a king, complete with a robe and a crown and a scepter. And then he was placed on a cross, and just as he had predicted, he was lifted up, and they put a sign over him that said he was the king of the Jews. And then he said, It is finished. So, he died in our place to take away our sin, the sins of the world. Well, obviously, there's still a lot of sin in the world. In fact, Sorry, guys, there's still a lot of sin right here on this platform, and there's a lot in me. You see, I see at least three ways that I'm guilty, and I'm pretty sure that it might ring true with some of you, that we live like that work really isn't finished. One way is that we gloss over our sin and the gravity of our sin. I get to thinking sometimes that I'm, I'm doing pretty well. A really good friend of ours has told us about a minister who actually told our friend and a group of high school students, I may sin once or twice in a year. That sounds pretty ridiculous, but I'm sorry. 
Sometimes I think maybe I live like I think that. And if that was true, then Jesus really didn't have to die, did he? Another way I'm sometimes guilty is to begin carrying the weight of my sin, feeling really guilty and burdened down by it, and thinking, God could never forgive this boo-boo. In other words, I get to thinking that his blood really wasn't sufficient for my sin. And still another way that I, and I think this one may be something that we all have a tendency to, is to think that God really needs me and that the works that I do for him are what keep me in his good graces. You see, I forget that the good works that he ordained for me from before the foundations of the world are really my sacrifice of praise for all that he's accomplished on my behalf. So I begin thinking that I need to keep on working to keep my place in his kingdom. See, I think the American dream has taught us all that there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Well, as we come to the bread and the cup this morning, Jesus is here to remind us that he really did the work. That he was obedient, even to the point of that very necessary death on a cross. And that salvation's work really is finished. Father, we can never comprehend the magnitude of your plan of salvation or of your love for us to be willing to sacrifice yourself. Thank you for your life-giving death and the hope that we have because of the resurrection. Help us to let your spirit examine us and show us the ways that we undervalue your completed work. Thank you that your blood continually cleanses us from our sin. And thank you for these emblems that remind us on a weekly basis of the completed work of salvation. In Jesus' name.
1960, there was a, a meteorologist at MIT that was trying to develop a computer program to predict the weather. I mean, we have those on our phones now, but in 1960, it was a huge bank of uh, uh, computers, and he, he made an accidental discovery. His name was Edward Lorenz, and he was running a simulation on this giant computer about uh, wind and how it affects weather. And the number he was supposed to put in was .506127. That was the wind speed that was going to be a part of this uh, simulation. But for some reason, he thought he would just do .506. He rounded down. I mean, come on, it can't be that much. He went away, came back a couple of hours later, and he found out that the weather simulation went way different because of just this little thing. And he found a radical change in weather conditions. He equated it to a puff of wind or the flap of a butterfly's wings. It was a few years later, a guy named Jake, uh, James Click in a book called Chaos first coined the phrase, the butterfly effect. He said, tiny differences in input can quickly become overwhelming differences in output. It's true in science, and it's true in life. Small choices can have big results over time, over space. We're in this series called Lion Chaser. We're finishing it up today. We've been in 2 Samuel 23, if you want to start joining us there. If you're joining us online or on the radio, thanks for coming in and being a part of Central Christian Portalis. And we want you to be in the Bible. We're a Bible-believing church and a Bible-using church. So have your Bible open to 2 Samuel 23. Now, we've been focusing on verse 23, a guy named Benaiah. He chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and defeated it. And, and the, the story of battle there is incredible. But I want you to go with me. I, I stumbled on something last week while we were prepping for last week. And I'd like to see if it matters to us. We're going to jump back a little bit to verse 8 and look at the mighty men of David. Jump back to verse 8 and, verse, and chapter 23. These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. The first was Jashubim the Hakmonite. If you're in the NIV, it's a really long name. It's the same name, just be, be with me. Who was the leader? He was the leader of the three, the three mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. Next in rank among the three was Eliezer, son of Dodai, a descendant of Ahoah. Once Eliezer and David stood together against the Philistines when the entire Israelite army had fled. He killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to lift his sword. Some versions say his hand froze to the sword. And the Lord gave him a great victory that day. The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. Next in rank was Shema, son of Agi from Harar. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. The Israelite army fled, but Shammai held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, I really want to focus in on that last guy, Shammah. I'm probably going to accidentally call him Shammah, but that's not his name. It's Shammah, like Shamalama Ding Dong, if you're from the 60s. Okay, um, He was third in rank. So he's the bronze medalist. He's just happy to be on the, on the stage, right? And it's in verse 11 and 12. His name means 
Jehovah is there. But through some study and some concordance and some other things, finding this name and this word shows up in another place in Scripture. It is the very last word in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, it is speaking of the city of Jehovah, the, the coming city of Jehovah, and it's actually uh, corroborated in the book of Revelation. And these two are describing the city of God, or some people believe, and I do too, that he's re- referencing the church. That this is what the body of Christ is, that God lives there. That he comes and dwells among us. His name means the Lord is there. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The highest blessing that could come upon a city is that its name should be Jehovah Shammah, the place where God is. But a couple of other things that intrigued me. He was from a town called Harar. Everybody say Harar. It's a hard word. It feels weird in your mouth. And I didn't know where it was. I'd never heard of it before. But it shows up. Now, hold on. Let me preface this. We're going to be a pinball for a few minutes. All right? It's going to bounce all over the place. You've got to hang on here. All right? I, I couldn't figure out this name, Harar. But it shows up a couple of other times. If you look down at verse 32 and 33, in David's mighty men, there were at least three or four guys from this town. So I tried to figure it out. Get a Bible dictionary out. Where is Harar? Turns out it's a walled city in Ethiopia. That's a long ways away. How far away, Don? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. I googled it. It is 2,700 miles from Jerusalem. Just a frame of reference. That's about the distance from L.A. to New York. That's a whale of a walk right there, okay? Now, we get that Ethiopia shows up in Scripture. The Ethiopian eunuch is an axe. I totally get that. But this is a long journey. And it says he was from Harar, and he fought the Philistines at Lehi. Now, Lehi shows up in Scripture again. Lehi is a place, anybody remember a guy named Samson? Samson battled some Philistines in a field at Lehi, and he killed a thousand of them with the jawbone of a, don't finish that. Uh, You know the story, though. He killed a thousand Philistines in this field at Lehi. Guess where this battle took, took place? And the Philistines are still the enemy of God's people. Now stick with me. Where are the Philistines from? Well, the first answer would be Philistia. Okay, yeah, you got that right. But where did they come from originally? Nobody knows. Some think possibly the island of Crete, but there's not much evidence for it. There is a a growing group that believes the the Philistines and the Cushites came from the same place. But the Cushites, guess where they came from? Ethiopia. Now here's where the pinball bounces all the way around, and now we get to hit it with the little paddles, all right? What if, what if that Shammah is in this field and he's battling this Philistine army... And it's his own people. What if he is battling against his own history? What if he's battling against the people, you know, I, I belong to God's people, but that's my bloodline. Which, one, which, one, which team should I be on? But you see, he chose his identity in God. He went against a bad people because he identified with God. And then there are four small words in Scripture that have very big consequences. The Israelite army fled. He was abandoned by the ones he fought with or possibly even led. We don't know when this battle took place, all right? 
But he was abandoned by the very army he was standing there with. Now, why would they leave? Why would the Israelite army leave? I don't know. Maybe they just saw, it's, it's very possible, they just saw the army, the Philistine army. I mean, Goliath, I mean, we, we know the history. These are bad dudes. Hey, we're going to lose. We should, we should run. Maybe that's all it was. Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe, maybe Shemo really was their leader, and they weren't really sure what he was going to do. Maybe he was going to pick his own people, and maybe they bailed on him. I don't know. I don't know why the Israelite army fled, but I know he stood there alone. Question, have you ever been abandoned? Not by God. It doesn't work that way. But I got a hunch, if I made you raise your hand, and I'm not going to ask you to, I got a hunch most of us in here could raise our hand that somebody bailed on us when we needed them and they weren't there. And we've, we've felt that pain of some person abandoning us. You worked hard on the marriage. You were there all the time. You did everything right, but they didn't. You knew the business plan would work. You worked hard. You put in hours. But it didn't. You didn't smoke. You didn't do drugs. You ate right. You took care of yourself. And now you have to take treatments. Maybe you just look outside the window and you see all this division and all this fighting and red versus blue and mask versus anti-mask and vax versus anti-vax and all this division and you go, I thought we were one nation under God. What happened? And we just, we look at it and we see all of this stuff and we see all this division and we wonder, what happens? What happens when you're working and it seems like everybody else quits? Does it feel like you're the only one? Like, like evil is uh, just, there's no hope. Evil is going to win. Friends, this is going to hurt. But listen to this. Evil is greater than our understanding. And the sooner we come to grips with that, the better we will be able to cope with bad things happening in our life. Because frequently we ask, why? Why is this happening? Why did he leave? Why did they have to die? Why, 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 why? And we want a why so it'll fix everything. Sadly, we often don't get the why. Oftentimes we don't get a why. And, and we're not going to understand why this bad thing happened in our life. In fact, i got a hunch, the more we try to deal with evil in our life by reasoning with it, I think we're going to get crushed. You know, if I just had a why, then I'd be okay. No, we wouldn't. Well, we'd get a why, and well, then why did they do that? We found out why they did it, but you know, you know what I'm saying? There would never be enough answer. When we just keep looking for the why, I just don't know that we're ever going to get there. We're coming up on the celebration of a pretty dark, evil day in our world, 9-11. It's coming up this Saturday. Um... It's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. If you haven't ever been to the, the memorial they have at J.P. Stone, it's happening this Friday morning about 7.30. They have it out in the parking lot, and they remember this horrible day. Now, a lot of us in here of a certain age, we remember. We know exactly where we were. Some of the youngers have just heard stories about that horrible day. And we remember those images, and we remember that feeling of just, I, I can't move. I don't even know what to do. 
Max Lucado was in New York about a month after it. He had flown in for a prayer meeting, and he was riding in a taxi cab. And he asked the cab driver, how has this tragedy affected you? And so there was a difference in language, you know, out-of-towner, and, and there was some language barrier. But he, he listened to him, and he, he, the gist of what he got from him was this. The taxi driver said, I'm always getting lost. You see, you could, you could see those towers from everywhere. And, and once you spotted them, you figured out, okay, that direction's east, that's north. I know which way to go. Now I can find, find my way around. But now that they're gone, he said this, I've lost my bearings. I wonder if we as a people have lost our bearings. We blame it on COVID. We blame it on division. We blame it on red versus blue. Where all we want to do is fight and be right. Have we lost our bearings? Let's put it this way. You're Shema. You're standing on the battlefield. You're fighting. Everyone quits. You look over your shoulder. This guy's running. You look over this shoulder. All you see is dust from the sandals running away. What do you do? Romans 12, verse 21, that was read earlier. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you, do you see the intentionality in there? There is an action there. Like the flap of a, of a butterfly's wings. We take little steps of bold faith, and we will see the results of it. So, he kept fighting. He kept swinging his sword he kept battling. Maybe he's just said, I'll just, I'll just do my part and God will do his part. And he just kept swinging. Friends, did you notice the last part of the story that we read in verse, verse 12 there in Second Samuel? It said, and the Lord gave a great victory. The Lord brought about a great victory. Because he did his part, the Lord brought about a great victory. Maybe you're in a battle right now. Maybe you're in a battle. Maybe you're in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Maybe you're battling marriage. And you're just not sure how much longer you can go on. Can I just plead with you? Do your part. Get to counseling. Well, Don, they won't go to counseling. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Do your part. Get help. Speak with people. Quit drinking. You hearing me? Deal with the issues that you have at home. Do your part and let God come into the equation. Maybe you're in a financial pit. Do your part. You're just overwhelmed and the lion of debt and the lion of bill collectors just keeps coming at you. Get involved in FPU, Financial Peace University. Gowan and Caitlin teach it. Franklin and Marie taught it for years. We've had many of the people in this room that have gone through it. It's going to be very hard nine weeks. At the end of nine weeks, you will not be rich financially. But it will help you to reframe some things. It will help you to listen more. It will help you to communicate as a family more. Help you to have a different viewpoint. Stop reckless spending. Maybe you're in a pit of discouragement. You don't see the end. You don't see any way out. I'm a loser. I'm just going to be a loser. So you resort to cutting. You resort to drinking. You resort to anything to make the pain go away. Can I just plead with you, do your part? Get to counseling. 
Get to somebody and be honest. Don't give them the, oh, I'm pretty good. I'm fine. I'm okay. No, take that mask off. Be honest. I'm hurting. I'm confused. I'm scared. I'm struggling. Being honest with that. Because God called us to a bold faith. We will overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb and what? The word of our testimony. Our speaking. And bold faith fights lions. Bold faith fights enemies. And it requires bold action. James 2 verse 26. Faith without action is dead. It's not really faith. Folks, Faith is not about how many people can we get to church. Faith is not how many things can we get that will make our pain go away or, or l- eliminate our risk. Faith is trusting God even if things do not turn out okay. You can aim in that. Faith is working in the face of the devil. Now some of you are just like, I don't know about this devil business. Okay, let's do it this way. If you don't believe in the acts of the devil, then you need to spend an afternoon doing common core math. (laughs) Hallelujah. Praise Jesus from some of the teachers. Uh, That stuff's evil. That's from the pit of... I I got three. The top two don't even come to dad anymore. They know better than that. I still got the third one buffaloed a little bit. And he's got Mrs. Smith, so there's some hope for him. But... The rest of them are like, we're not bothering because Dad doesn't know. We'll go down the street and ask Laurel. She's a math person. She knows things. Dad doesn't math well. He doesn't figure anything else. Let me give you a little God math. Okay? You ready for this? A little bit of faith plus a big God equals huge results. I've seen the evidence of your goodness all over my life. Now, sadly, all I see right now is all the problems. I see all the pain. We've got to start declaring the evidence of His goodness in my life. The proportion of our faith is not as important as the location of our faith. Let me make that more simple for you. The size of our faith doesn't matter. Mustard seed, really, really small. It doesn't matter as much as the direction of our faith, the God that we serve. If we have a big view of God, if we see a big God, then our problems will shrink. I wonder if, if Shama is sitting there swinging swords and wondering, why doesn't God do anything? Have any of us said that in the last year or two? We look out the window and we see all this mess. God, how much longer? I mean, anybody? We've, we've all said it. We've all whispered something like it. How much longer, God? When, when are you going to do something? I'm still fleshing this out, so bear with me. And if I, it doesn't make sense, send me emails later. It's mine. I, it just seems to me that we want a God that is big enough to fix all of our problems, but small enough that we understand what he's doing. Does that make sense? We want a God that's big enough, can fix all the problems, but we want him small enough so he listens to my advice about what to do and about when to do it. Amen. Hallelujah. He wants me to do it on my time. All right. You guys come on in. Come sit right down here. We got something special that's going to happen in just a minute. So I need you to stick with me. I don't think we can have it both ways. We either have a big God or we have a controllable God, but we can't have both. Y'all come on in. Come sit right down here on the floor. It'll be fine. 
Hi, buddy. It is good to see you, Grant. Friends, faith is acting like God really knows what he's doing. Faith is acting like God really is telling the truth. That I will not leave you. Did you hear how many songs talk about you will not be alone? You may feel alone, but God will not give up on you. So Shema kept fighting. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Eliezer kept fighting, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Benaiah went into a pit chasing a lion, battled, and the Lord brought about a great victory. There's an old saying, no one can, can bet too much on a winning horse. You can't bet too much on a horse that's going to win. Friends, our God is going to win. Now we know it, but I'm afraid I'm going to get to the end of my life and my biggest regret is going to be all the times I didn't trust him more. I didn't trust him with my finances. I didn't trust him with my relationship. I didn't trust him which, which direction to go. So what do we do, Don? When the others quit fighting, when I'm all alone, jump with me over to the book of Romans. I love Romans chapter 12. It's a powerful passage. But Romans, the first 11 chapters, is Paul trying to describe the theology of God. And the verse, first verse in 12 is, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he goes on in the 12th chapter to tell us how to do it. How to act in faith. How to have a bold faith. Join me in verse 9. We're going to read fast, so stick with me. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Listen to these phrases. Listen to how he's talking to new Christians. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Look on in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the Scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Did you hear some of the phrases in there? Don't be lazy in showing devotion. Don't pretend to love others. Really actually care about them. When God's people are in need, I love it when we start stacking up mac and cheese or we bless teachers or we do things for college students where this church family pours into other people. I love how we are listening to that call to action. In verse 14, bless those who persecute you. In fact, he says it twice. It's such a big deal that he says it twice. Now, L1 and L2 are a big deal in this church. If you're new, L1 is law one. Love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and mind. And L2 is love your neighbor as yourself. Those are our core values. Friends, if we really L1, then these things are not very hard. 
And if these things are very hard, then maybe we're not L1-ing very good. He says, live in harmony. He says, don't pay back evil. Don't get revenge. We've got to be the people that de-escalate. Oh, I'm going to show him. I'm going to straighten him out. I'm going to write a post that will set them straight. We're going to be the people that de-escalate. We're going to be the people... Look in verse 20. Go across the street and help somebody. Well, Don, they don't go to church. Don't care. But Don, they're not the right... Don't care. But they live up. Don't care. Love others. Is our faith moving us closer to the likeness of Jesus? Because our faith has never been, let's get a bunch of people in a building. Faith has always been, let's be where Jesus lives and go take that into the community. You want to conquer evil in our world? It's how we deal with opposition. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. It's got to be a mindset change. Can I challenge you to read chapter 12 of Romans every day this week? Just read it over and over. Just read it. Just let it, let it speak into your heart. L2 is not very easy until we truly L1. But when we L1 really, then L2 is the fruit of it. The butterfly effect has been postulated in science for years. But I think it's a spiritual application too. If we, the body of Christ, will start taking little steps of bold faith, steps of treating people different than the world treats us, we are going to see a large, large ramification. We have seen the evidence of His goodness all over our church body. Amen? Have we seen the evidence of evil? Yeah. But our God is bigger. Our God is stronger. So we declare His greatness. We declare His evidence is so clear. Let's declare that together. Would you stand? Would you sing a little bit? Just this chorus with us of this song. And let's declare how great His goodness really is. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.